Please take your Bible and turn with me to the 56th Psalm. And this, along with portions of what we read from Deuteronomy chapter 1, will serve as the basis of the morning message. The 56th Psalm. We're going to deal with the matter of fear, something that we're all acquainted with. Psalm 56. This is a psalm of David when he had been seized by the Philistines in their capital, the city of Gath, which, by the way, was the home of Goliath until he had been slain by this same David probably a decade earlier. Needless to say, David was not highly popular in the city of Gath. Verse 1 of Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth in anger. Put down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Indeed, my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. I dare say that every one of us knows the impact of fear on our lives. You might gain some sort of comfort from the fact that many of the stalwarts of Scripture, many of the prominent people in Scripture knew what it meant to be plagued by fear. Let me make a quick overview of some of these people. I'll begin with Abraham, the father of Israel. Abraham, who is agreed upon by all those who write about him as being the prototype for faith. If you want to know what a picture of faith is, the Bible points to Abraham. Abraham, in his period of nomadism, found him and his troop, including his beloved wife Sarah, in the land of Philistia, in the presence of Abimelech. Now, Abimelech sometimes is viewed, if you don't know much about the historical background of the Old Testament, as the given name of a king of Philistia, one person. But upon closer examination, what we find when we look at the internal evidence of the Old Testament is that this was a title much like the title that was given to the king of Egypt. It was like Pharaoh. 
and various pharaohs fulfilled the role of being king of that great Egyptian empire. Abimelech is a name for a title for a person who sits in that place, and many followed this particular Abimelech. And when Abraham looked at the situation, as he and Sarah and their troop were moving into the direction of Philistia, he said, tell Abimelech and anyone else who asks you that I am your brother. You are my sister. And what's interesting about this, that was a half-truth. Because she was his half-sister. Different mother, same father. And we see this man coaxing his wife into lying to save him. That's a real man, isn't it? Uh, Abraham. So Abraham, he knew what fear was. He feared Abimelech and those in the Philistine nation because of the beauty of his wife. Moses. You, I'm sure, familiar with the Discussion, it's almost an argument that Moses had. He took exception with God's choosing him to be the great deliverer of the nation of Israel out of over 400 years of bondage. And it's back and forth. And Moses is giving every possible reason that he can think of as to why he should not be the one chosen. He said, what am I going to say to these people? How do you suggests that I'm going to go before the most powerful man in the world and represent you and these people. He said, after all, I have a speech impediment. I have some sort of stuttering problem. Well, it's interesting that the book of Acts in the 8th chapter talks about Moses and it indicates that Moses was a man eloquent in speech. Moses was probably trying to fool God in that conversation. Let's go a little bit further, not very far forward in Israel's history, to Joshua. Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. God told Moses as the people of God were getting ready to move out of 40 years of wilderness wandering into the promised land to conquer it. He said, you appoint This man, Joshua, who has been your understudy for all these years, you appoint him to lead Israel into the promised land. Well, Joshua showed a great deal of courage when he and Caleb went with ten other men, all of whom were representative of their respective tribe in the nation of Israel, and they spied out the land. You know the story. When they came back, ten of the people said, It's a no-go. The land is exactly as God told us. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. However, the people who inhabit the land are so tall. They are giants. And consequently, they view us as grasshoppers, and that's the way we're viewing ourselves. But not so with Joshua and Caleb. They said, yes, there are giants in the land. However, God has promised us that we would be those who would own the land. So, let's go for it. Well, you know the rest of the story. They were outvoted. You know by what margin of victory the naysayers had? 603,400 
46 said no. Two said yes. I'm sure Moses would have said yes and Aaron would have said yes. Maybe a few others. But that was the result. Well, when time came for them to go into the promised land, just as God had designed it, Joshua was the leader. But as he was getting ready to go into the promised land, in the first chapter of the book of Joshua, I'm sure you're familiar with it, on several occasions, God says, Have I not commanded you? Do not fear or do not be dismayed. This man Joshua was filled with fear because undoubtedly the thoughts of all those giants began to swim in his head. He might have even dreamed about what would be encountered when he got there. Another figure, Elijah. Perhaps you know the story of Elijah. You're probably familiar, if not with Elijah's life, of an event that occurred in Jesus' earthly ministry. Do you recall when Jesus took three of his closer apostles with him up on a mountain, which we have come to know as the Mount of Transfiguration? Do you remember that experience? And when they got up on the mountain, they had two heavenly visitors. Who were they? Moses, the great lawgiver, representative of the Torah, the law of God, and also Elijah, who is the representative prophet. He was a great prophet. He didn't write any of the books that we have in our Bible, which were written by prophets, but he lived a bold life. He was never bolder than when he was on Mount Carmel, and he faced off with 400 prophets of the false god of Canaan, Baal. And in great strength and courage, he wiped them out, one man against 400. And lo and behold, the next day, he received a word, a message from the queen of Israel, Jezebel. And allow me to paraphrase. She said, boy, I'm going to have your hide, is what she said. And he became like a little boy. He tucked his tail and beelined it into the wilderness. He wanted to get as far away as he possibly could rather than face the consequences of his having played havoc with this woman Jezebel's God. There he went, off, in hiding. Go to the New Testament. Peter. Remember how Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has gained permission to sift you like wheat. And I have prayed for you, You're going to fall. You're going to do what I'm saying you're going to do. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. But when you return, strengthen your brothers. Do you remember how strongly Peter protested at that suggestion of Jesus? Do you recall? What did he say? Master, all these other guys may abandon you. But Jesus, you can count on me. I'm not going to turn tail and run. Well, what happened? Jesus' prophecy came true, didn't it? He did, in fact, three times. The first of which was when a little maidservant 
a, a little gal came and said, aren't you one who is associated with him? And she must have pointed to Jesus, who was in the courtyard of Caiaphas at that moment. And he said, no. And the Scripture says he really cursed, can you imagine, the great Peter, the one who was viewed by Christ, actually, and by his fellow apostles as the leader of the apostolic group. And then he denied Jesus two more times, and then he went out, the Scripture says, when Jesus' eyes met him after the rooster crowed, and the eyes of Peter met the eyes of Jesus, and he went out. Remember that? What about the Apostle Paul? Did he ever show fear? I had to dig a little deep here in my memory bank. He was a bold man. Not very impressive at all to look at. He was a small man, according to extra-biblical descriptions of him. He had squinty eyes, probably the result of his seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus and these things like scales came up over his eyes. He had poor vision. He was, by the account of the one who gives this account in extra-biblical literature, he was bald, he was short, bow-legged. He was nothing to look at. But he was like a banny rooster. Any of you know what a banny rooster is? Well, some of you have that background on a farm. You know what that means. He was seemingly ready to throw down at the drop of a hat. But there was an occasion, at least one, and I would imagine there was more than one occasion that would be like what I'm about to mention about the Apostle Paul as it relates to fear. When he came to Corinth, he said, I did not come to you with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I came with, do you remember how he describes his coming? With fear and trembling. Now, some of us are rather adept at covering up our fears. We put on a strong exterior. We don't want to let anyone see our weakness. We don't want anyone to note that we might be a bit afraid. But that was not the case when this great Apostle Paul came to Corinth, he came with fear, but also it was visible. He was trembling in that situation. And the Lord came to him one night in a dream. And the Scripture says, Jesus said to him in this dream, He said to Paul, He said, don't be afraid. I have many people in this city. Don't leave. Keep preaching the Word of God. And Peter did. Timothy, Paul's primary disciple, in the books of First and Second Timothy, a careful read will indicate this man, Timothy, was a fearful person. And there's a reason for it. He was a young man. Paul says to him in First Timothy 4.12, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers. All ages of believers. He was the designated pastor, as it were, the overseer. He was, in effect, the one whom God had chosen through Paul to carry on the work in Ephesus after Paul had left him there to do just that. On one occasion in the writing, Paul says, Take a little wine for your stomach, suggesting that he had stomach problems. Sometimes, if you're anxious... You have stomach problems. Do I have a witness? Anybody else? Some of you don't have that problem. That's a blessing. But every once in a while, it'll affect your digestive system, won't it? 
So we know he was afraid. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, here's what we read. Paul wrote to him. He said, Fan in the flame the gift of God that was given to you at the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Why would he say that to Timothy? Remember, this was not written to the church at Ephesus. This was written to Timothy because Timothy wrestled with fear. And then the man that we're considering this morning, David. David, the great warrior king. David, the great poet and musician. David, who faced off the giant Goliath of Gath and slew him with a stone, a single throw, square dab between his eyes and brought him to death. This David. And what do we hear him saying in this passage of Scripture? Twice he talks about his being afraid. He says, when I am afraid. Actually, literally translated, in the day that I'm afraid. David was acquainted with fear. Just as surely as Abraham, his forefather, and Moses, and Joshua, and Elijah, he also wrestled with fear. This raises a very important question. We use David for our informant as to what it means to have fear. And where does the fear originate? Well, the fear in David's case had to be things which his enemies were doing to him. So, quite frankly, we have people who are opposed to us. You have to live in a hole somewhere, not to have some people who don't like you. We all have enemies. And the more we identify with the one true God, the more likely we're going to accumulate some opposition. Remember what Paul said when he was writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16? He said, I'm going to come to you, but not until after Pentecost, for the simple reason that there is much opportunity, a wide door for effective ministry has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me, wherever there's opportunity to follow the Lord, we can be sure there will be great opposition to such following of the Lord. Our primary enemy, of course, is none other than Satan himself. Satan is described as our adversary, the devil, by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5. And we need to remember what the Scripture says about this battle that we wage in this life against fear and other sorts of feelings, not to mention a whole force that's marshaled against the work of Christ, trying to stem the tide of the spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes in verse 10 of chapter 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. He goes on to say that we are people who wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
And then he says, stand firm then. He says, stand, 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 stand in this short passage of Scripture so that we might not be overwhelmed, whether it be by fear or any other sort of intimidation that the devil brings against us. Remember, he is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is the bully of all bullies. And when you and I feel fearful, when we feel intimidated, be sure that it comes eventually, it has its root in the regime of the devil. And he uses his minions, demons, to carry out and dispatch this kind of hysteria in the minds and hearts of God's people. But people who were motivated, I would imagine, by the devil, doesn't say as much, but we put two and two together when we look at what is taught us in Ephesians chapter 6 about our struggle in this world. And we look at verse 1 of chapter 56 of Psalms. Look at it. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Now, what does the word trampled mean? Here's what it literally means. Snapped at me. There were people there in Gath who were snapping at Paul. They were saying things about him and putting him down. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. That would be his enemy oppresses me. My foes have trampled, it's the word snapped at again, snapped at me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. Has anyone ever used words to intimidate you? And they just chew you up and spit you out? Have you ever had that happen to you? Well, bullies are good with words. They choose them carefully, and they use them to really bring us into a position of submission to them. It's the way of the devil as well. Look at verse 5. All day long, they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. Can't you just sense David's fear in that situation? He had no one else with him. It was David against all of the Philistines. He didn't have his 400 band of merry men whom he would see attached to himself in a couple of chapters forward in the book of 1 Samuel from the part that talks about his going and feigning, pretending that he was nuts so that he could maybe make it out alive from that situation. So people, if you look at Abraham, what really made him fearful? The thought of people finding him out as to who his wife was. What about Moses? He was really afraid of Pharaoh. He was afraid of what his people would say, the Hebrew people would say. Joshua, afraid of the Anakim, the giants in the land. Elijah, afraid of Jezebel. Peter, afraid of a little maidservant and others who found him out causing him to run. Paul, afraid of what he might face in this citadel of intellectualism in Corinth, in Greece. Timothy, of the older leaders in the church and other people who were fomenting rebellion against the leadership which God had placed there. 
And David, as we've seen, David in the form of the people in Gath and the Philistine people. Some of you probably, when you think about why you have fear, I thought about this over the course of my lifetime, fearing failure. Well, failure is a non-entity, isn't it? Failure is not a person, is it? So why do I fear failure? Why do you feel failure? It's because we're afraid of what other people will think about us if we fail. Now, when we sin, that's one thing. But sometimes we just fail. We try hard. We put our best foot forward. But we fail. And what will people think of you and me if we fail? I'm motivated by a certain fear of man when it comes to preparing a message like this. And a long time ago, the Lord spoke to me. And he said, Mike, who are you trying to impress anyway? I know you. I know you have nothing in you that is capable of having any impact on anybody else. The only thing that makes you capable of having any kind of positive influence is my presence in your life, Mike. So get over yourself. And trust me. And... Since then, not every time, but virtually every time that I have the responsibility to stand in a place like this or in a small group, almost every time I will pray this prayer, Lord, if it would suit your purposes better, let me fall flat on my face today if I'm depending on Mike Woods and not on you. So our fear of failure, sometimes we Fear of failure because we'll disappoint our parents. And I'm not talking about sin here, so don't mishear what I'm saying. Many times I was kept from sinning because I would, as a boy, I would think of my parents. And I did not want to embarrass my parents or bring dishonor to my parents. That's a definitely legitimate reason not to do sinful behavior. But sometimes our parents have raised the bar so high for us, or at least we think they have, that we cannot... Tolerate the thought of failing. Anybody ever had that run through your mind? Well, the fear of failure really is the fear of people, I would suggest. And the flip side of failure is the fear of rejection. That's what happens when we fail. We're not viewed as people of worth by people who matter to us. And by the way, there are so many times that we have a tendency to worry about Other people who don't really matter to us. We just think they're important in our lives. Look, we should be people who try to live as peacefully as possible. This is what the Bible says, with all people and be respectful of all people. But there's one person whom we can always count on. God says in the book of Isaiah, Though your mother forgets you, I think it's instructive that he uses the word mother. Daddies can forget their sons and daughters sometimes, but mothers never get their children off their minds. Never. Though your mother forgets you, I will never forget you. In fact, this is what God goes on to say, I have engraved your name on the palm of my hand. Now, we know that's a statement that he's making when he's talking about that. I'm talking about when 
God's making through the prophet. He's not talking about a physical hand. God's a spirit. But you get the picture, correct? So, the source of our fear is the fear of man. In Proverbs 29, verse 25, Solomon, the son of David, writes this, The fear of man brings a snare. What's a snare? It's a trap, isn't it? Fear is a trap. Who sets the trap? I would suggest the devil sets the trap. He wants to neutralize you and me. He sets the trap. Now let's spend the remaining time considering the solution to fear. This is really important. We've established the fact we fear, and we're in good company when we fear. We have eight different stalwart figures in Scripture, heroes of the faith who failed in the area of fear. We see that. But here is the simple solution in this matter of our fear. And it's putting our faith in the Lord. So let's look again at the text, Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. That's another way of saying, I'm going to put my faith in you. The word trust is a word which means to attach oneself to. To attach oneself to. We see this. I have a picture in my mind of a time in my life when I was afraid and I attached myself to my father. I I felt close to him and when I felt close to him, I felt safe. I never felt unsafe when I was around my dad because I knew my father would take care of me And the idea of God being the one in whom we put our trust, it's the idea of putting our complete confidence in Him, attaching ourselves to Him. David knew that kind of relationship. And by the way, David had been a man who had done that. And then for some reason, he moved away from that. And there is a cautionary tale here for us. Once you learn to trust in the Lord, you have to keep trusting in Him. There are all kinds of opportunities to not trust in Him once you've established that connection with Him. And we have to continually be reminded by the Spirit of God through the Word of God that we have to put our trust. How frequently are we to trust in the Lord? All your ways acknowledge Him. All of them. Not 80% of them, not 90% of them, all of them. Do we always trust in Him? No. But when you sense that your trust level is sinking, then go to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for not trusting in you. By the way, Lord, you told me in the book of Romans 14, 23, whatever is not of faith is sin. So when I'm not trusting in you, Lord, I'm not depending on you and I'm not walking with you. No wonder, Lord, that I lose confidence and begin to get fearful. I want to concentrate on you. Back to the passage in verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. Can you sense his confidence building? He's not psyching himself up. He's pondering the truth of who God is and what God has promised. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? The New International Version says, What can mortal man do to me? And the word actually translated man is the word flesh. 
speaking of a human being. What can mere man do to man? Let me just pause here a moment. If you know Jesus, what is the worst thing that another human being can do to you? What's the worst thing? Kill you. That's it. Kill you. But what does that mean for us who know the Lord? What does Paul say? For to me to live is Christ. To die is what? Gain. Do we believe that? Probably not as much as we ought to. We have not pondered enough what is waiting us in heaven. A place where there will be no more capacity to sin. It's a place of full faith in the Lord. That's amazing to think about. To be with the Lord. There's not a whole lot said, really, about what it's going to look like in heaven. I mean, we talk about the streets of gold and the gates that are like pearls and all that sort of thing. And I guess that's true. I don't have any argument with any of that. But the main attraction of heaven is not that we're not going to have trouble anymore. The main attraction is we're going to be face to face with the Lord who saved us. And we're going to worship Him. We're going to serve Him day and night. And the Lord has a great plan for you if you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, I would not waste another moment in my life. If I didn't know Jesus, knowing the little bit that you've heard about God today, I would make a beeline to God through Jesus Christ. I would trust Him with my whole heart. Reasons we should put our faith in God. Here are two I'm going to give you. First of all, because of His nature. In this verse of Scripture, which we just read, actually verse 3, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. By, in God I have put my trust. His word. Listen to what the Bible says about the word of God. In the book of Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19, the Scripture says, God is not a man that he should lie. That presupposes that he speaks, doesn't it? And if he speaks, we can count on what he says to be true. God is not a man that he should lie. 1 Kings 8.56 This is what Solomon says at the dedication of the beautiful temple which God had led him to build. He said, Not a single word of all the good promises that God has made has not been fulfilled by that God. Not one word. He was talking about the law of Moses. Everything which God had promised and said, especially as it pertained to the building of the temple, all of that had been fulfilled. God provided. God protected. God gave the wherewithal to accomplish all of that. So, God always does what He promises. His Word is flawless, Solomon writes in Proverbs 30, verse 6. We can trust His nature. He always does what He promises. That's good to know, isn't it? Lest I forget it. You and I have access to a treasure house. You and I have no idea how valuable the Word of God is. 
It is our most prized possession on earth. It is a treasure beyond imagination. In it, it's a storehouse of truth about who God is. And remember, we've got to get that right first. It's His nature. He cannot lie, Titus says. Titus 1, verse 2. God cannot, does not lie. This is His nature. He is a holy God who does not lie. We can bank on what He says. Be a man or woman who minds the Word of God for the treasure that's there about the person of God, but also about God's concern for us. And second reason that we should trust in God in addition to the fact that He has a perfect nature is because of His concern for us. He nurtures us. He cares for us. In 1 Peter 5, 7, the Bible says, Cast your cares on the Lord, for He cares for you. Can you believe that? How many people are there in the world? I last checked on that data about a month ago, 7.7 billion. And He cares for you. He cares for me. He cared for David. He cared for all the other figures we have looked at in Scripture. He cares for you. If you are His child... He cares for you. Look at verse 8 of Psalm 56. You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? David cried. We associate that with wimpiness, don't we, men? We don't want to let anybody see us cry. Well, David professed that he had cried. And this is not the only time in Psalm 6, verse 6, He said, my bed is flooded with my tears. And the word flooded literally means in the Hebrew language, swim. So his bed was swimming with tears. David was awash in a river of his own tears. That's a picture of grief, isn't it? And those tears were associated with the fears which were struck into his heart. There probably were other contributing factors, but in light of what this text says, he was afraid of these people. He was at a point of great weakness. But notice what he says about our tears. What does he do? What does God do with our tears? He puts them in a bottle. That's a figure of speech, I guess. It could be a bottle. God makes bottles. I know that. It could be a bottle. He puts them in a bottle. They're in his book. And we don't know exactly what he's storing those tears for. We don't really know. But in some way, there's going to be a time, probably, when God gives those tears back to us as a memorial of how he took care of us during those times of stress. And as he does that, this is Mike Woods speculating This is not in the Bible, okay? What I'm going to say is in the Bible. He's going to wipe away all of our tears. Revelation 21.4 says, He's going to wipe away all tears. You have sadness in your life? Have any of you cried a tear since last week? Well, the good news is, the Lord knows about your tears. And He loves you. If you are His child, He cares for you. He cares for you tremendously. 
He cares for you. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Keep your place there in Psalm 56. We're going to look at two or three things from this passage which we read earlier. And I just happened to be reading this yesterday, and as the Lord would have it, there's a lot of information here which is important for us when it comes to dealing with our fears based on the nurturing nature of God. In this passage of Scripture, look at what God says through Moses in verse 31. In the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you. Now look at the metaphor that God uses. Just as a man carries his son. Is that a picture of caring concern? How many of you men remember when your children were young, or maybe some of them are still young enough, when they would go to sleep, maybe it was on the sofa in your den, maybe it was in the back seat of your car after an extended trip, or maybe a short trip, and the child was out like a light, and you gently picked the child up, and you cradled the child against your chest and you took him or her to bed. Do you remember those moments? Those are dear moments, aren't they? And your child was cared for by you. And this is the image that God uses to describe the kind of care He has for us. He said, He carried you. For 40 years, He's carried you in the wilderness. Your shoes did not wear out. I don't know how that works, but that's what the Bible says. Your shoes did not wear out. You didn't go hungry. You didn't go thirsty. For 40 years I carried you. How long has the Lord been carrying you? Some of you have known Jesus more than 40 years. A few of you have. He's carried you. Is this not a picture of His nurturing concern for us? He is our Father. He will take care of you no matter where you find yourself. He protects us. Thank God for His protection since we're in Deuteronomy One, let's look at verses 29 and 30. Then I said to you, do not be shocked, nor fear them. He's talking about the Anakim, these giants in the promised land. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Wow. When Moses had finally been used to get the people out of bondage. They had not gone very far. They had made it to the shore of the Red Sea. And they were in a quandary. What do we do now? You brought us this far. What do we do now? And the people were grousing, of course. That was their favorite activity related to Moses. They were complaining. And then God said to Moses to tell the people, tell the people, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be still. He said that to Moses to tell to the people, and Moses obeyed. He told the people, when the crack charioteer forces of Pharaoh, with Pharaoh taking the lead, had come out against them. And the only thing that separated these people, and they weren't totally defenseless, they had some weapons that they took with them, the Scripture says, out of this bondage, but they were not trained in war. A little later in their wilderness wanderings, God 
told them to skirt around their enemies because those enemies had armies which were trained for war and these people had yet not learned how to wage war. So they were inexperienced and they were frightened undoubtedly and I would have been too with that army bearing down on me. But what does God say? The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be still. And then in the next verse almost in chapter 14 of Exodus, the Bible says... Go forward. God says, go forward. Well, is God confused? He says, be still. Go forward. Well, a closer examination of the command to be still yields this very important piece of information. The word be still, depending upon the context in which we find it in the Old Testament, may mean don't say anything. Now, let me ask you a question. When you are opposed by somebody and they're snapping at you, what do you do usually? You come right back at them, and you try to do one better with them. Correct? Snapping at them. And the word also is used, depending on the context, to mean don't listen. Probably both ideas would be combined. Because here was this massive, massive force coming against them. And they were only separated by a cloud. I think sound travels through a cloud. Doesn't it? It doesn't prevent you from hearing. And they were saying all kinds of nasty things to the Israelites, I'm sure. Just wait till we get hold of you. You're going to be dead meat. But the Lord said, don't listen, don't talk back. The Lord will fight for you. Did the Lord fight for them? Well, you know the rest of the story. And that's not the only time the Lord fought for them. And that's not the only time that... He will fight for us. He is on our side. In the book of Psalms 56, did you catch that? Where David talks about how, I'm sure when I call on God, I'm sure He's for me. He's for us. He's not against us. If we know Jesus, we're no longer His enemies. Why? Because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. When He died on the cross, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, and if you read Romans 5 in that context, we were His enemies. While we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us, took our sin upon Himself. After three days of the grave, He arose, and we were justified by His resurrection from the dead. And what we need to know is that if we know Jesus Christ, we are protected by Him. God nurtures us, shows His concern for us by protecting us. He also provides for us. Let's look yet another time in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 32. But for all this you did not trust in the Lord your God, who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you in camp, in fire by night and cloud by day, to show you the way in which you should go. Do you know, some of you are wondering... What's my next step in life? That's kind of scary. What's my next step in life? I don't know what form it may take for you, but I would imagine there's more than one person who finds himself or herself in that position. Well, the Lord's going to lead you. He's saying, go forward and trust in me. Listen to me. Fellowship with me. I'm not going to leave you hanging in the lurch. He provides for us. He provided for these people Forty years, I've already alluded to that. No need to go back over that again. 
And here's the other thing. He's always there for us. Isn't it amazing to think our God would want to be that involved in our lives? But let's just sample some of the things which the Scripture says in this regard about His being there for us. In Joshua 1.9, this is what He says to Joshua. He says, after He said, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, He says to him, obey Me. And then He says, the Lord your God will never forsake you. He will be with you all the time. All the time. He's with us. He's in us. He dwells in us who know Him. In Isaiah 41.10, God says, Do not fear, for I am with you. In Hebrews 13.5, He says, I will never forsake you, neither will I turn my back or abandon you. Hebrews 13.5. And permit me a moment of in, in, uh, interpretation that may seem a little dull, but it's more than dull. It's incredibly helpful. In that verse in Hebrews 13.5 where he says, I will never forsake you. I will never turn my back on you. In that few, ver- few words in that verse is five times he uses the negative. Five times. I will not, he says, I will not. He says it twice. I will not, I will not forsake you. Nor, or neither, that's another negative, will I abandon you or turn my back on you. And in there he says, I will not abandon you, I will not abandon you. Five times. He uses the the strongest possible language God does through the writer of Hebrews to let us know he's never going to forsake us. He is a good God who cares for His children beyond our imagination. Remember what Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good gifts to you? This is our God. He is indeed one who is worthy of all of our trust, giving everything, our whole lives to Him. Trusting Him just as a child trusts a parent. That's the picture that God would have us to have of Him in our hearts. A God who is a holy God, incapable of lying. A God who is worth our fearing Him instead of fearing man. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, don't waste your time worrying about fearing The person who can only destroy your body because when that person is finished destroying your body, that's all that person can do to you. But rather fear Him who has the capacity to destroy your soul. He's talking about God. Jesus is talking about the Father. He's the one who destroys souls. And He doesn't want, really, in a sense, to destroy the souls. He says in the book of Ezekiel, He says, the soul which sins will die. But later in the 18th chapter, he says this remarkable truth. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and turn away. This is the Lord speaking to us. So, finally, to apply what we have learned 
some simple things, the most important of which is listen to God's Word. How do we develop faith? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Listen to the Word of God. You can hear someone teach it. You can hear someone read it. And let me stop and make an obvious statement of truth. We are no closer to hearing the voice of God than when we hear the Word of God read or we read it ourselves. Begin to practice. Listen carefully when the Word of God is read. Not expounded, but read. Explanation's good, but just listening to the Word of God. Listen to it. Read it aloud in your own quiet time occasionally. Typically, I read it silently because I don't want to wake my wife up when I read it. I'm usually up before she is. So, read it aloud sometimes. Hear it with your own ears. Listen to the Word of God because that's where your faith grows. Memorize God's Word. That's the second thing. And in this particular case, regarding fear, I've given you a lot of verses about fear in this message. And there are 365 times in your Bible where the Bible says, do not fear. You don't have to go very far to find some promise attached to the matter of our overcoming fear. Do not fear. Memorize it. But if you only memorize it, you've still got one step to take. Review God's Word regularly. This is what might be described as meditating on God's Word. Joshua 1.8, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Proverbs 29.25, I've mentioned the first part of it. I'm going to mention the entire verse here as I finish. It says this, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Now let's think about the men that we considered earlier. The eight men, they had lapses of trust, didn't they? Abraham did. Moses did, Joshua did, Elijah did, Peter, Paul, Timothy, even David did, the man after God's own heart. But they didn't stay lapsed, did they? They didn't stay in a lapsed condition. What did they do? They got reconnected. They trusted the Lord. Some of you perhaps have lapsed. It's time for you to renew your commitment to trust in the Lord and not in your circumstances are people, but in the Lord. If you've never trusted in Christ, it's a step of obedience and faith, choosing Christ before yourself, giving Him control of your life, asking Him to wipe the slate clean as far as sin in your life and give you a new life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Word of God, how You have used it in our lives in my life for many decades and most of the people here. Some people are here, Lord, who have lapsed in their trust in You. We ask, Lord, that You would restore them today. That they would just trust in You again, afresh in You. Commit themselves to You and Your Word. And then, Lord, for those who do not know You yet, but they have sensed as they have heard this message, 
It's really for those of us who believe. They found a yearning in their heart to know this kind of God. So we pray this would be the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.